Well hello, here we are in another new year and the date is the 29th of January 2011. This is Passing the Baton number 45 and the title of this month's teaching is Inheritance and Personal Responsibility. Let's just pray before we begin shall we? Father, I ask that you will bring a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you as we listen to what the Spirit is saying to us today, that you will give us an understanding heart, that you will settle issues that have been outstanding for us as we explore your intent for our lives and our desire to align ourselves with that intention. We love you, Lord. We want your way and we want your ways for our lives. Thank you that your blood is like acid to our sin as you house train us and prepare us to receive the kingdom. Take us, Father, into the next stage of our development. Bring us into our inheritance. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Our inheritance begins and ends in Christ. As we learn how to be led by the Spirit, we are upgraded into successively high levels of encounter and experience of our inheritance. We are children of God, able to have our needs met by a faithful and consistent Father. We are also sons of God, learning to walk in a higher place of identity, destiny and therefore inheritance. Children cannot enter into fullness and live in abundance consistently. We need to cross a line in our relationship with the Lord and the spirit of adoption plays a major role in that process. I've just quoted from a recent teaching entitled Coming of Age which was by Graham Cook where he talks about it being time for the church to grow up into all things in Christ. God's speaking to the church about growing up and coming into the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. He's speaking about crossing that line, making that decision to be a fully mature son who comes into his inheritance in Christ Jesus. God planted a divine spark of destiny, passion and purpose in each one of us. He designs our destiny to flow from who we are to what we do. The secret of spiritual ascent is by a ladder which has five rungs identity, character, vulnerability, alignment and destiny. As you discover your true identity God works on your character to form Jesus in you. In place of your insecurity you become vulnerable to him. You align yourself with him and begin to enter your destiny and therefore your inheritance. Your process is from beholding to becoming. As you behold him you become like him. Your inheritance is part of your mature alignment with God in Christ, both who you are now and who you are becoming. Your journey into your destiny, passion and purpose. Permission has been granted in Christ for you to reach your fullest potential. So, what's stopping you? 
Crossing that line into a higher level of spirituality will change your personality and open you to the fullness of your destiny, inheritance and purpose. But you have to make the first step. Every time you receive an upgrade, your personality will be upgraded too. There is a life waiting for you out there. This month we will be looking at things that can stop you or delay you coming into the fullness which Father desires for your life. He is for you, not against you. He wants you to succeed in being yourself, the person who you are becoming, the person he intends you to be. Father will never change his heart towards you. He only wants to love his children no matter what the dippy decisions, mistakes or successes they make. He's not performance oriented in that regard. So we will look at things which determine gain or loss in inheritance terms which are under your control and as such are your personal responsibility. We will look at trading and what that means. We'll look at refusal to mature. We'll look at refusal to hear and some of God's ways of loving correction. When all of history comes to its climax, the one thing that God will be revealed as looking for is a people for his own possession, a bride fit for his son, a bride who will match his heart for her with her desire and passion for him. God is after your heart and he's after you. From Genesis to Revelation we see the Father's desire. He wants a people he can call his own, a nation belonging to God, a bride for his son, and he's looking forward to a wedding, the wedding of the universe. That bride will know who she is and whose she is. She will be fully mature, faithful and brilliant, she will be aware of her inheritance, her identity, her destiny and her purpose. And she will be equipped to reign and rule with the King of Kings in the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth and throughout eternity. As I said at the end of 2010, I firmly believe we've moved into a new time, not a new season in God. In words I've heard recently, the party's over. We are in serious times and our choices will govern our authority and influence in kingdom terms both here in the years and months to come and for eternity. We are a people of purpose and design. We're not on this earth at this time by accident. We have a mission to fulfill and it's time we came into agreement and alignment with God regarding this in order that we can become everything is planned for us to be. We cannot afford to be casual about the things of the kingdom any longer. We're in a serious time, but a most glorious time. This will be the church's final hour. The full beauty and radiance of a bride, fully given to her bridegroom, is about to be revealed on the stage of time. It's a time where the preparation of the bride for her bridegroom is in acceleration. Therefore, everything in your life right now is allowed for that one end and purpose. To bring you into maturity. To make you fit to reign and rule with your beloved. God has one goal for you. Maturity, maturity, maturity. 
So this word is both a preceding word and a word of preparation. Do not take it lightly. Do not dismiss it. There are lessons in here we need to learn and learn quickly in order that we do not fall into the same trap as others about whom I will speak. Jesus is coming back for a mature spotless bride, one who loves him and knows him as the sovereign ruler of the universe, whom she loves and fears in equal proportions. I love him with a passion, with all my heart, but I also fear him with a reverent awe and respect. Please do not think there are any casual friends in the kingdom. Friendship is earned through faithfulness, obedience, consistency and intentionality towards God. It is not a given for half-hearted, lukewarm followers. So it's time for us to stop being casual about the things of the kingdom and start being intentional, purposeful and determined towards them. No one drifts to the top of a mountain. They plan, they train and eventually they set out on that climb and because of their hard work they expect to reach the summit. We spent most of last year looking at what it means to be intentional so if you haven't caught up with that teaching yet visit us on www.psalm131.com where you can download what you need. Everything in your life is designed to bring you to that place of encounter with your bridegroom to cause you to look up, stir your passion for him, to make you as passionate about him as he is about you. Everything but everything, beloved, is relational. There is nothing with God that is outside of relationship with his children. So it's not about your ministry, it's not about your calling, it's about encountering His Majesty and keeping your eyes fixed on Him and Him alone. And out of that intimate relationship will come your calling, your ministry, your destiny and purpose which will bring you into your inheritance. It's time for us to recognise His right to us. Surrender is not an option. We are his treasured possession, his passion and delight. We are his eternal bliss, his delight, pleasure and enjoyment. And he is ours. He is our pleasure, delight and enjoyment. He is our inheritance and we are his. It's mutual. We are joint heirs with Christ. And he has paid the bride price. He bought us with a price and that price was his blood. We do not belong to ourselves, we belong to him. The purse in my bag is mine, I own it. He owns us, we are his, his beloved treasure. He bought us, he delights in us. But he never forces that ownership upon us. He simply loves us into a place where we abandon ourselves to him. As we recognise we're his and say with the maiden in the Song of Songs, 6 verse 3 I am my beloved's and his desire is towards me. She knows she can get anything out of him. What bride doesn't? His desire is towards her.
proceeding and preparing. So this teaching is both a proceeding word and a word of preparation. By proceeding I mean it's present and future. It's now but not yet. It's moving you towards the future, giving you a clear compass heading on the direction in which you personally and the church corporately should be moving. It's God's revelation of his plan for us and our next step. It will also include some timely warnings because gaining your inheritance is not instant. So in that way, it's a word of preparation. You don't pour water on your inheritance and mix it like instant porridge. You don't automatically come into it. Instant anything has problems with it, as we'll see as we travel together. So let's start by defining a preceding word. Jonathan Edwards said, It is the task of every generation to discover the direction in which the Sovereign Redeemer is moving and to move in that direction. The sons of Issachar before us were men who understood the times and the seasons. You'll find that in 1 Chronicles 12:32, And in the New American Standard Bible it says it like this. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. These sons of Issachar were men who both understood and knew what Israel should do because they understood the times they were in. Foresight and insight are prophetic and they come from God as both preceding and directional words, timely words, words in season. If we have no preceding or advancing word we go in circles or we get into a rut, another name for an open-ended grave. A preceding word is a compass bearing. It points you in the direction in which you need to go. It gives you a direction in which to head. Embracing a preceding word will probably bring with it differences of opinion, dissension, opposition and conflict. As God answers our questions, what do you want to do with me as a person? What is your plan for us as a group, as a church? As we become intentional in our choices and decide to be radical and not stick with business as usual, both personally and in a corporate sense, we discover the reality of a preceding word and sometimes the persecution that it brings with it. A preceding word has forward not backward impetus. It takes you from one place to another in the spirit. We become a people who are present future, not present past. We cease looking backwards at our past and our disappointments and failings and begin to anticipate the kingdom in our lives now and in the future. We begin to become. And we build from there towards what God is seeing and saying about us. That's how prophecy works. It's a word spoken now showing you what is to come. You lash yourself to it and pull yourself into the future as fast as you can. A preparing word. God said to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. Genesis 17.1 Modern translations use the word blameless. In, in essence, it means be mature. Grow up. God was prophesying over Abraham, this is what I want you to become, Abraham, and because you are going to be the father of many nations, 
I need you to become in the now what you will be in the future. You have to become a man upon whom I can place responsibility. And from now on, you are in training. From the moment that your prophetic word is spoken, showing you who and what you will become, the training starts. Welcome to boot camp. This is God's message to the church right now. I need you to become this in order that you will become that, a bride who is a fitting companion for her king. From then on, as we read Abraham's story, we see the process of a man walking with God and being prepared and matured by his circumstances. God reveals his weaknesses and his strengths and he makes him fit to be what he prophesied over him, father of many nations. You can track his life by reading the book of Genesis chapters 15 to 25. Abraham goes through various stages as he becomes a man who was later described as a friend of God. God develops in the man trust, obedience, strength in leadership, fear of God, integrity, faith, godly sensitivity and consistency. God doesn't change the way he does things. There are still no casual friendships in the kingdom. We earn friendship with God in exactly the same way as Abraham did, by consistency, obedience and faithfulness day by day. God is always present future with us, never present past. He always speaks to what he sees, not to what we see. He saw Abraham as the father of many nations when his body was as good as dead. And what he sees in us is brilliant. So the sooner we can get our heads around that, the more quickly we will step fully into our inheritance. You can't, cross, cut, you can't cut across the park on this one. God is waiting for you to be consistent and diligent in your pursuit of him and intentional towards him in your responses and obedience to him. He's immutable. He doesn't change the way he does things. He doesn't change the way he loves you, but you are responsible for how much of your inheritance you actually receive and walk in. You can't fail any of the tests. You simply get to take them again and again and again and again and again and again until you pass. And you decide whether you're going to walk in fullness or measure. It's your responsibility. No blame, no shame attached. God doesn't do blame or shame to you or anyone else, but you're the one who determines how far and how fast you'll travel by your responses or lack of them. And as we'll see next month, there is an eternal aspect to all of this. Crowns, rewards, all are up for grabs. And this is real, folks. The choice and the responsibility for obtaining your inheritance is yours. So, proceeding words. A proceeding word is vital for kingdom health and energy. And here is an example of one, and it was given by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 43-48 in the New King James. 
You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's proceeding about that? You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus was giving a proceeding word to the people who would listen with a view to obeying. He quite likely said, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, you all listen up. Be perfect, be mature, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that word is still extant today. It's still a present and viable word for us to grab hold of and live out. Jesus was saying, you've heard this up to now. But now I'm saying this, and from here on, you don't hate your enemy, you love your enemy. And you pray for those who persecute you, and you bless those who spitefully use you. It was shocking in its dynamic. You have heard, but I say, and they sought to kill him. That's the effect a preceding word has. They sought to kill him. This word in Matthew 5, 43-48 is one of the most important preceding words we may ever hear, as is the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. If we really begin to live in these chapters, the church would turn the world upside down. Jesus is here saying something like this, if you allow me to come to you and do something in you, I will teach you to love agape as the Father loves. That is maturity. God is inclusive, not exclusive in his love. He loves those who get right up your nose and he blesses everyone. His view of things is not yours. He's not judgmental or critical. And it will take a mindset change to see others the way he sees them, loving them as he loves us. So, embracing this word will probably bring differences of opinion, dissension, opposition and conflict, and maybe even outrage at such a thought. Forbid it, Lord. Won't be the first one to say that. And the injunction to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect is also an ongoing, a preceding word. God has not stopped requiring that of us. It's the goal of every believer that we may be perfect in maturity as our Father in Heaven is perfect. And it is a benediction. He's leaning down to us and blessing us and giving us to perm permission to be like this not like that. God isn't talking about sinless perfection but about the maturity which comes when the agape love of God 
is fully perfected and manifested in and through us. Again, the word perfect here means mature. In other words, grow up into all things in Christ, or as Graham would put it, come of age. In the natural, it's only when you come of age that you get the key to the door, or it used to be in my time. And he will systematically teach you to trust him in any and every situation. He will teach you that he is your provider, sustainer and health giver. He will teach you he is your vindicator. He will teach you to trust him and him alone. And then he will begin to trust you because you will have proved out your faithfulness under trial, your stickability in the face of adverse circumstances and your default position which is I am a much loved child. The place from which you will not be moved. You will no longer be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. As a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So if at this point you're asking what does God require of me, here is your answer, that you should become fully mature in love that we as the bride should come to spiritual maturity and be perfected in love, fit for our bridegroom whom we love, honour and obey. If we don't hear and allow this word to be worked out in our lives, we may find ourselves building on sand rather than the rock and eventually the whole house may collapse. So it is both a preceding and a directional word. Don't do this, do that. Paul's letters are full of it. It's demanding, it's controversial and it will be challenged. But the fact remains that these are Father's wishes, that we should bear his likeness and show it forth to those around us. We're in the world but not of it. We do not have to be like them to win them. We are not meant to be culturally relevant. We are meant to show the people around us something so glorious, so brilliant, that their lives are radically changed forever as they see and perceive the Christ life, the risen life, in and through us, and seeing it, desire it themselves. We are the message. The church has left the building and is taking the heart of God onto the streets. This word fulfills the Father's desire for a people of his own who would reflect his nature and his character. This is what he wants more than anything else, his own family who bear his likeness, a family where there's no sibling rivalry, a nation within a nation who show forth the glory of God, that the earth may indeed be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's Habakkuk 2.14 in case you were scratching your head at that point. So Jesus comes to us to do something in us. If we resist the work of the Holy Spirit whom Father sent, we are resisting Jesus himself. 
And the Holy Spirit comes to us to bring us up to the capacity to love in the same way as the Father loves. What John the Apostle calls love perfected in us, love fully formed in us. 1 John 4, 17 and 18 says it like this in the message. God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house, becomes at home and mature in us, so that we are free of worry on Judgment Day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ's. There's no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear, since fear is crippling. A fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. If we fail to allow his coming in us, we delay his coming for us. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11-13 in the Amplified Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah guide our steps to you. And may the Lord make you to increase and excel and overflow in love for one another and for all people just as we do also for you, so that he may strengthen and confirm and establish your hearts faultlessly pure and unblameable in holiness in the sight of our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah with all his saints, the holy and glorified people of God. Amen, so be it. Again, this is a preceding word. Once you begin to see them, you begin to sense God's anticipation. In the Old Testament, Jesus gave ten simple commands to the nation of Israel to keep his people on track and make them fit for the promised land which he was giving them. He was saying just the same to them as he said to his disciples, and he says to us too, Love me first. Don't make an idol for yourself. Don't take my name in vain. Observe the Sabbath which I have given you. And then he goes into the word which affects our relationships with others. Honour your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie about someone. Don't covet. Ah, coveting now. There's a big one. And he says, if you love me, you could show it by doing these ten things. These words will get you into alignment with me. As we saw last time, four of these ten are towards God and six towards our fellow man. You can find them in Exodus 20, 1-17 and Deuteronomy 5, 1-22. When God gave the Ten Words, which we know as the Ten Commandments, to his chosen people, Israel had recently come out of slavery. So it was certainly not his intention to reinstate that slavery, but to set them free. He wanted to bless them, their families and their future. But they resisted his hand upon them and his right of possession of them. His will, his wishes and his desires are always redemptive in nature, but they completely failed to see it. These ten words were a gift from him to anyone who could see the freedom and understand the value built into them. 
Why should it sound tyrannical for this loving God who just released his people from slavery to ask for the surrender of their self-will? It's a name for nothing anyway. We're exactly the same. Beloved, we need to know the government of God both over us and in us. We need to surrender our right to ourselves so that he governs the desires which would otherwise run wild in our hearts and are in need of restriction. So as God is immutable, he doesn't change. Here, Jesus, God incarnate, gives a word of command in Matthew 7, which is also a test. Everyone who hears and acts, everyone who hears and does these things. It's perfectly possible to hear the word of God for 50 years and never act on it. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes the point that unless you build in the way his Father specifies, your building will not stand on that day and entry to the kingdom will be barred. So what I want to talk about today are the things that determine gain or loss in kingdom terms. What we can do to gain, keep and preserve the kingdom of God within us and what causes us to lose the kingdom. Not our salvation, the kingdom. Our preparedness to reign and rule with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. This is a literal kingdom, beloved. It's not a fairy story. Jesus will reign on the renewed earth for a thousand years and we will reign with him over how much is governed by what we do with our time whilst on this globe. And you will not, I repeat, not lose your salvation. So let's look at, start by looking at... Um, an inheritance hastily gained. And we need to go to Hebrews 6, 11 and 12 for this uh, New American Standard Bible. And we desire that each one of you shall show the same diligence <clears throat> so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Track the process here. Diligence, faith, patience equal inheritance. Some of the pain we experience is self-induced. It's due to what the Bible calls an inheritance hastily gained. Proverbs 20:21. 20, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Or the message, inimitable this, a bonanza at the beginning is no guarantee of blessing at the end. We aren't talking about instant whip. So what is an inheritance hastily gained? We know, don't we, of a young man who couldn't wait. And he wasted his inheritance on high living. Luke 15, uh, 11 and 12. It's about the prodigal son. And he said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. We know the story, and we know that when he came back, father restored him. He was never not a son. But he never got back 
that which he had recklessly spent. He was restored into father's house, but he lost his inheritance. There is a cost to an inheritance which is hastily gained, and in this case lost. You don't get it back. But clearly you do not lose your salvation. Father welcomed the boy back. That example was of the young man asking in advance for his inheritance. He wasn't ready for it, he couldn't handle it, he wouldn't listen, he wasn't mature, so he wasted it. It poured through his fingers for a short time of pleasure. And most likely he spent the rest of his life regretting it. You don't come into the land of promises instantly, there isn't a magic wand Faith and patience are two of the ingredients. Youth is hasty. It wants it, and it wants it now. And some Christians are just the same. I have this gift, I want the power, let's have it, and have it now, bring it on. They don't allow process. They won't be told, and God lets them run with it. But another issue is that discipline delayed is not discipline overlooked. God's delay is not denial and sometimes the things we are doing invite his loving correction. Ecclesiastes 8.11 in the New International Version, uh, copyright 2010. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. I can break the speed limit time after time thinking I'm get away, getting away with it but the day will come when the police will call me over and I will have to pay the penalty. Sometimes we do something that violates God and his word. We might do it in ignorance, by mistake or even forbid it Lord intentionally but for whatever reason we violate something in him. Some years ago I was at a conference and an American was speaking. His name was Henry Hinn, brother of Benny Hinn. I didn't like his style, I didn't like his brashness, I didn't like him. And I made a judgment. It was silent, it was inward, nobody heard it. I spoke to no one, but God heard it. During the course of the meeting, my friend kept whispering to me, respect the anointing, respect the anointing. I didn't understand what she meant, didn't like the man. I was committing the sin of ignorance. But, ignorant or not, it cost me. At the end of the meeting, we were all called forward to receive of the anointing. And I was up the front there, in the first row, hands out, waiting to receive. I saw this huge golden wave of anointing oil and it was big and it was coming straight for me and just as I was expecting to be overwhelmed by it, it stopped short. I asked the Lord what had happened and he showed me. My judgment of his anointed who I didn't like had disqualified me from receiving what I so desired. I lost it for good. I never did receive that anointing and I didn't get another chance. It was gone forever. That is a lesson, beloved, that I have never forgotten.
so I speak from experience. Do not think, beloved, you can violate something in God without there being a penalty, even if you do it in ignorance. I now know that this was part of God's loving discipline on my life, but it had the effect of causing me to respect the anointing, whether I think the person should carry it or not. I urge you, beloved, to pray very seriously about what this message contains. Do not just take my word for it. Seek God, ask him if this is a principle with him. You must know and learn for yourself. You cannot live from my experiences or my trials. But you can be prompted to seek God about the veracity, the reliability and the truth of what I'm saying. Is there such a thing as the sin of ignorance? Take a look at the Old Testament. And something else I've already mentioned, discipline delayed is not discipline overlooked. Sometimes what we're doing is just not judged on the spot. God lets us run on. I wish he wouldn't, but he does. And we think we're getting away with it if we think at all. But as we continue believing that it's because he's still speaking to us, we're all right. Because he's talking to us, we are in fellowship. Suddenly, something happens to catch our attention and we learn a lesson. God didn't judge that particular thing right away. He let us run on with it. So when the Lord starts dealing with you, sometimes you need to look back more than three days. Get serious. Ask him what it is that's violated or dishonoured him. You might have to go back three years or five years. These things are cumulative. It just lets us run. I wish he wouldn't, but he does. And I have experienced this too. Because a sentence is not speedily executed, we think he's overlooking what we're doing. That he didn't see it, or that he agrees with it, or we got away with it. Or that even our gift more than makes up for our behaviour. No, 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 beloved, you just got yourself into trouble. Sooner or later, God will judge and discipline the action. It's a principle with him. Character is far more important than gift. And when he comes, he comes to take over, not to take sides. He just doesn't see things the way we see them. And the discipline is loving. He's not cross with you. He's just house training you. Consider Abraham. Meditate on the route that God took his man. You'll see much of God's loving discipline. So I've not only experienced these things myself over the last 25 years. I've seen them take place in others around me. And I speak to you with a heavy heart, beloved. And I'm so serious about this. It is a principle about the way God deals with us that you desperately need to understand. Discipline delayed is God's grace, giving you time to hear what others are saying to you in order that you may repent, change your mind, so that he doesn't have to bring discipline to you. But discipline delayed is not discipline overlooked if you fail to listen. And tests are necessary.
Another scenario. Things can happen to us suddenly. Suddenly everything we thought we knew, everything we thought we understood, the progress we thought we were making, suddenly we're just holding on, everything's shaking. But this time it's at God's initiation. Peter and the boys and Jesus suggests a boat ride. It was his suggestion, remember? He put them into that situation. Seasoned fishermen end up crying out, Don't you care that we perish? You're living in unreality if you think God will not purposely and intentionally lead you into situations that will upset your fruit basket for your ultimate good. He was just testing the disciples at this point. He had no intention of their not reaching the other side. Lovingly, he was saying, let's see where we are right now, boys. How much peace have you really got? Just a test. Now, let's move on to see what else determines gain or loss and in inheritance terms. And a big one is uncontrolled desires. When God's government or control in Jesus Christ is ruling over us and our desires, when we wouldn't let anything get in the way of our relationship with him which we jealously guard, we're able to walk in intimacy and freedom with him and with each other. As long as we're ruled by our desires and those desires are uncontrolled, we can't walk in all the freedom and intent of the kingdom of God. When my desires are uncontrolled and ungoverned, no one can tell me what to do. I am determined to get my needs met and have my own way, regardless of who gets injured. Uncontrolled, ungoverned, natural desires soon reveal just how much we need a saviour. Just look around you. Me first, personal satisfaction, gratification, what I want or need, is the aim and goal of everyone. Love me, touch me, feed me, nurture me, give me, give me, give me. If it feels good, do it. Insatiable demands, uncontrolled, ungoverned desires that are leading the world to destruction in the guise of freedom. The if it feels good, do it philosophy. Empty and loveless, they seek that which will never fulfil. Uncontrolled desires equal an ungoverned self-life which seeks the best for me. The flesh always wants to be three things, first, best and right. And true freedom is the ability to say no to yourself. It's the ability to stop and start. If there is anything in your life that you cannot stop, beloved, you're out of control. It's controlling you. You have lost the ability to stop and start in that particular thing. So allowing the Father to rule over our desires changes the way we approach our lives and our Christian walk. As we trust him and release and surrender our lives to him, completely we allow his kingdom truly to come into our lives and those around us. As we relax under his smile and obey father's commands which are not burdensome, as we take his yoke upon us which is light and easy, we walk with him and work alongside him 
and our true identity comes forth. We begin walking in our inheritance and our destiny as the beloved in the beloved. And no one is safe from a blessing as the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Being yoked with him means we will experience all he experiences and do all he wants to do in the earth, going where he wants, not where we want. His desires become our desires, his thoughts are our thoughts, we are co-workers with God. We love what he loves and we hate what he hates. Allowing him to be both our Lord and Saviour guarantees entry into the kingdom and much fruitfulness. Self-rule, self-government on the other hand, disqualifies us from kingdom life and rule. We are king on our own throne and we have no eternal reward for our busyness and no lasting fruit in our lives. The kingdom of God is now and it's also not yet. And we saw last time people who persist and continue to do the things which they know are wrong cannot be under the lordship of Jesus. He's their saviour but he isn't their lord. They're under their own lordship and dominion and therefore they disqualify themselves from walking in the kingdom in the here and now. And there is both a temporal and an eternal aspect to the kingdom. The rewards for living in intimacy and connectedness in this life and we will explore the eternal aspect next month when we see what qualifies us to hear God's well done. So arising from uncontrolled or ungoverned desires is what we call trading. And a simple definition of trading is uh, you give me this and I'll give you that. Trading is not a complicated thing and it always comes at a time when it can seem exceedingly attractive. Jesus was being tempted to trade in Luke 4, 5-7. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. All this is mine. If you worship me, I'll give you this. The temptation to do a trade. Worship me. That's a trade. And it's all yours. Jesus is here being tested in his humanity. He was tested in all ways, just like us. Hebrews 4.15 our inheritance is already ours. We only stand to lose it by trading it off against something else which gives us instant gratification or temporal pleasure of some kind. Fornication, idolatry, house, car, holidays, knickknacks on the shelf, adultery, stealing, impurity, sensuality, anger, factions, envying, sexual sins uncontrolled desires. There is a no ruling of our own bodily appetites. And there's more to these things than simple forgiveness. You can always be forgiven because sin is dealt with. 
The point is you stand to lose something more and that something more is of inestimable value. You're forfeiting something and that something is your inheritance. You lose. It's not your salvation. What you lose first of all is your righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's an excellent allegory by a, a Kerry Sean called Once Upon a Time where she speaks of how the enemy lures young girls into desiring what the world desires by making them dissatisfied with themselves. It is a brilliant piece and it drives the message home very clearly showing what we lose. I will be recording it shortly and it will also be available on the website as notes and the title will be Once Upon a Time. So, as the Bible is always our best source of information, let's look at a few examples in other people's lives and how their inheritance was affected by their ungoverned desires, which led to them trading their inheritance for something which was forbidden. And to see this, we must start at the very beginning with a command which was also a test. And you will see how the desire for something forbidden goes hand in hand with trading and with a test and how it causes us to lose our inheritance. Have you noticed how often God's commands include a test? Adam, a test command and a desire for self-rule. Genesis 3, 1-7 in the New international version. You knew I was going there, didn't you? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat anything from the tree in the garden, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you mustn't touch it or you'll die. You will certainly not die, said the serpent, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Very familiar passage. God gave Adam a command which was a test of his free will. Just one. Don't do this or that will happen. And by the way, tell your wife. So two things are happening here. Adam is being tested in his obedience towards God and Satan is trying to get him or Eve to disobey and relieve him at the same time of his inheritance. Satan knew the stakes were high. He was playing for control of the world by enticing Eve to desire something God had forbidden. Neither she nor Adam saw this. And here's the trade. God knows you'll be like him. 
the trade is the desire to know more than God considered good for them. In his desire to be like God, Adam lost the rule and dominion over the earth, which had been freely given to him by God. As he reached out in desire for that which was forbidden, he makes a trade. Genesis 2.28 God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam handed over the title deed to the earth, thus losing his inheritance and ultimately his life. The temptation for something and the grasping for it will always lead to loss. When you come into the kingdom of God, you come the same way as Jesus did. You were born from above by the Spirit of God, baptized in water, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then sooner or later you were led into the wilderness, just as he was, to test you and to prove you and to see what's in your heart. It is at this point in the wilderness that trading can seem exceedingly attractive. It's not a complicated thing. The devil approaches you and says, I'll make you a deal. You lay off that spiritual stuff and I'll show you a good time. It isn't always as clear as that. It can come, why don't you just live a little, only one life you know, you're missing out. Or as in my own case, it's not too late, you can go back. And that was on the eve of my water baptism. What are you about to do if you fall for this? You're about to make a trade. You're about to trade your inheritance. You're about to trade what you have for what's being offered. The road ahead looks hard. Let's do a trade. Ease off on that religious stuff, why don't you? Incidentally, I didn't make a trade. We've just seen the devil made a trade in the garden with Adam, who traded Satan's life for God's truth. If you eat that, you'll die. Satan said you won't die. Clearly, Adam traded, and when he traded, he lost his inheritance and he started to die. He made a loss which affected us all. Alive and free? I don't think so. Your will is only free to disobey God, to step away from him and be governed by your own desires, which are in essence the devil's plan for your life. Are you aware that he has a plan for your life too? And it isn't a good one. It's to steal, kill and destroy you and everything that you have. It's to prevent you coming into your inheritance. And someone else who counted what he'd been given as nothing and he traded it. And even with tears he couldn't regain his loss. And his name was Esau. He was a man of ungoverned appetite. The desire that tripped him up? Food. Genesis 25, 30-40 in the message. One day Jacob was cooking a stew. Esau came in from the field, starved. Esau said to Jacob, Give me some of that red stew, I'm starved. That's how he came to be called Edom, red. 
Jacob said, Make me a trade, my stew, for your rights as the firstborn. Esau said, I'm starving, what good is a birthright if I'm dead? Jacob said, First, swear to me. And he did it. On oath, Esau traded away his rights as the firstborn. Jacob gave him bread and the stew of lentils. He ate and drank, got up and left. That is how Esau shrugged off his rights as the firstborn. Esau did a trade and despised his birthright. He was the firstborn and the rights of the firstborn were his, a double portion. But his inability to control his appetite and his desire for instant gratification cost him his birthright. He traded it literally to fill his belly. Instant gratification. But he regretted it and he later wanted it back and he sought it with tears. Genesis 27:34-41. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants. With grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered him and said, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of which his father had blessed him. <laughs>